Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. On today's episode, we're going to be tackling a particularly tricky topic, how women can intentionally or unintentionally become enforcers and perpetrators of patriarchy. Fortunately, we'll have not one, not two, but three spectacular guests joining us to help unpack this phenomenon by sharing their own experiences, their own emotions, and their own insights. Each of our contributors, Heather Sundahl, Carrie Salisbury, and Heather Renfro, has a unique and insightful story to tell, and I'm so grateful to have them all with us. We'll begin our exploration with Heather Sundahl, whose piece is called Mistresses of the Patriarchy. Heather talks about how she was raised to fear feminism and to invest her faith in Phyllis Schlafly and how this ultimately led her to question the very nature of power structures and what power even means in the first place. Heather Sundahl is a writer a writer I hugely admire, by the way, and an editor, and she's currently studying to be a marriage and family therapist. Her favorite pastime is swapping stories with family and friends. This is Heather Sundahl. The story I'm going to share is entitled Breaking Down Patriarchy, When the Oppressor is One of Your Own. I grew up in the 70s when the battle over the Equal Rights Amendment raged. Our family was typically Mormon, with my dad going off to work every day while my mom stayed home to raise us four kids in the suburbs. And gender roles, while not rigid, were enforced. Boys weeded, girls vacuumed. The leaders in Salt Lake City encouraged the Relief Society, the all-women's organization in our church, to support the anti-ERA movement, headed by conservative activists like Phyllis Schlafly, who created the Stop ERA campaign. Stop was an acronym for Stop Taking Our Privileges. Chew on that for a minute. While I wasn't exactly sure why I was supposed to hate Bella Abzug and Sonia Johnson, my mom made sure I knew they were dangerous like swimming after eating or washing Pop Rocks down with Coke. She assured me that Phyllis Schlafly was one of us, a woman who knew that equality was a dangerous threat to femininity. I asked why I was supposed to hate the ERA when equal rights sounded good. Mom explained that if the ERA passed, women could be put in combat or worse, have to share a bathroom with a man. But if women were supposed to stay at home, why had Mrs. Schlafly run for Congress in 1952, 1960, and 1970? My mother muttered that she was an exception, and women like her would keep women like us safe. Though I was too young to articulate it, I was learning that within patriarchal structures, only a few special women were allowed in and given access to power. I wanted to be one of the chosen few, an elect lady, who was smart and talented, and without the caveat, for a girl. When I got to BYU, it felt like there was a certain prescription for femininity, and I didn't have it. I became dismissive of most of the women around me. They were vapid and lacked ambition. Maybe men were in charge because they were better. I felt lonely. I prayed to find my place. I attended a devotional that was featuring one of the women who made up the church's highest leadership. There are about a hundred men at that level and only nine women. I don't remember her name or what her topic was, but I will always remember this one line. Sisters, 
Women don't need to be astronomers because we can sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to our babies. It was ridiculous. I returned to my dorm and told my roommate, mocking the speaker's voice, high and sing-song, and we laughed and laughed. But at some point, I realized my guffaw had become a gasp. I was crying. I wondered if God had made me a woman to punish me, allowing me the desire to reach for the stars, knowing I would be shamed if I tried. My sophomore year, I stayed home to work and went on a study abroad winter semester. Most of the teachers were men, but their wives were wicked smart, had advanced degrees, and cultivated their talents without apology. They were Bible scholars, renowned organists, PhDs, and they listened to me, encouraged me, made me feel seen. But I could still hear the mistresses of patriarchy in my head, telling me that a career-focused education would be a waste if I wanted a family. When I returned to BYU, I sought out mostly female professors who supported women, and I began my feminist awakening. I started to better understand how patriarchal structures are designed to control who has power, and how the women I've come to call mistresses of patriarchy are created by such toxic systems, granting status to the few at the expense of the many. Let's talk about power for a second. Brene Brown observes that there are different ways of viewing power, that some work from a position of power over, while others work from a position of power with, to, or within. In a 1968 speech, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Power is the ability to achieve purpose. Power is the ability to affect change. There is no control in King's definition. One group hoards power and views it as a finite quality and is used to manipulate. The other view believes that power is transformative and expands when shared. Imagine then what happens in a patriarchal structure where power is finite and held almost exclusively by men. If there are positions open to women, the women chosen will be the ones who not only share the same, quote, power overview, but who will uphold the status quo. But they will defend the structure and guard the power more aggressively than most men because they live in fear of being rejected and continually having to reassure the patriarchy of their compliance. I call them mistress because of that word's many meanings. A mistress is a woman in a position of authority or control, but usually one given that authority by a man. She is also the illicit companion of a man, betraying another woman in the process. Think Margaret Thatcher, Dolores Umbridge, Phyllis Schlafly, Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl, Betsy DeVos. We all know these women, and if you belong to a conservative religious tradition, you have seen them up close and personal. The president of the women's organization who insists on running every decision by a male higher up. The girls camp director who takes pleasure in enforcing rules and may even make them more rigid than specified, especially where modesty is concerned. The youth chorister who will only let the boys sing, I hope they call me on a mission. It's heartbreaking, really. When power is exclusive and held only by a few, it's easy to adopt the pie analogy and think that if more power is given to one, then power must necessarily be taken from another. This misconception encourages people to see anyone who's not them as a threat. Men versus women, whites versus BIPOC, cishet versus queer, and on and on. 
and makes outgroup token people who are allowed access to power more likely to support an institution that actually oppresses them. Recently, I was helping my mom with a story worth question. My sister and I had bought it for her 88th birthday, hoping to get her to record her personal history in bite-sized pieces as they send you a different life experience question every week. This week, the question was, what is the bravest thing you've ever done? My mom was stumped and asked me because I am the family story keeper. I knew what I wanted her to share, but I was a little nervous. My mom is a rule follower and is proud of her loyalty to the religious authorities in her life, but she is also deeply compassionate and a good steward over whatever flock she serves. In her late 30s and early 40s, she had readily followed the counsel of her leaders in the battle against the ERA. She was competent and compliant and was routinely put into positions of power, power over women. There are almost no instances in the Mormon church where a woman is in charge of a man. But by her 50s, my mom had learned about some of the limitations of the patriarchal structure. My dad's work did not provide insurance. So with two kids in college, she took a job as a reading specialist at an elementary school that provided health care and supplemental income. After two decades of staying at home, she liked working. She was well-respected and made a huge difference in many kids' lives. In the mid-80s, the head of the church gave a talk entitled, To the Mothers in Zion, urging women to be wives and mothers, full stop, no and. He quoted the previous prophet in saying, I beg of you, you who could and should be bearing and rearing a family. Wives, come home from the typewriter, the laundry, the nursing. Come home from the factory, the cafe. No career approaches in importance that of wife, homemaker, mother. Cooking meals, washing dishes, making beds for one's precious husband and children. Come home, wives, to your husbands. Come make home a heaven for them. Come home, wives, to your children, born and unborn. Wrap the motherly cloak about you and, unembarrassed, help in a major role to create the bodies for the immortal souls who anxiously await. The talk was controversial, with some women feeling vindicated and superior, and others feeling shamed and judged. It was a Molotov cocktail tossed into the brewing mommy wars. One day, a large box arrived from church headquarters in Salt Lake City. It contained hundreds of pamphlets to be distributed to the women of several congregations over whom my mother presided. The pamphlets contained the motherhood talk. My mom wrestled with her dilemma, whether or not to distribute the pamphlets. Many women in our congregation worked, and for a variety of reasons. Who was my mom to judge? Would feeling guilty make them better women? Ultimately, my mom decided it was between the sisters and the Lord, not her. My mother, who had so often been the only woman in the room who had not abused that power, but not challenged it either, had reached a tipping point. She never distributed the pamphlets. She says she still wonders sometimes if she made the right decision. But over 30 years later, with a better perspective, she stands by it. And it made a huge impression on my teenage self, seeing my mom use her power to choose women over patriarchy. Like a mistress of patriarchy, Moses was raised to oppress his own, to keep them in line, to be the exception. But ultimately, he could not turn his back on his people, not for all the power in Egypt. 
In my mind, I imagined my mother driving to the church parking lot at midnight and tossing the box into the dumpster. I picture her taking out a can of aerosol hairspray, Aquanet, and using it with a lighter to set the pamphlets ablaze. The flames glow like a burning bush, and it is beautiful. We're so thankful to Heather Sundahl for sharing her story and offering such powerful insights. I especially keep thinking about this fact that Heather points out that power is not finite and doesn't need to be held over other people. There's more than enough pie for everyone because there was never even a pie in the first place. It's such a simple but important truth. Next, we'll hear from another amazing writer, Carrie Salisbury, who will talk to us about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the death of desire, patriarchal paper cuts, and the difficult journey to her own feminist awakening. As a note to listeners, this brilliant segment does contain explicit language as well as a discussion of sexual violence. This is Caroline Salisbury. My pronouns are she, her, and I work as a musician, educator, and creative entrepreneur. I live in Los Angeles, California with my husband, our three children, and a pandemic puppy. Along with writing, my favorite therapy is late night sourdough baking. In 1760, Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau had this to say about educating women. The woman's entire education should be planned in relation to men, to please men, to be useful to them, to win their love and respect, to raise them as children, to care for them as adults. These are women's duties in all ages, and these are what they should be taught from childhood. This Rousseau quote seems so exaggerated, almost like a caricature of what a man might believe about women, and most developed societies would consider this an extreme view. But to examine the layers of training and taming I've experienced over a lifetime of lessons from men and women, religious leaders, relatives and teachers, this view of women's roles in education in relation to men is still in effect, as is evidenced by my own upbringing. Defining myself in terms of my utility to a future husband and potential children was the lens I used to look at my talents from my adolescence and into young adulthood. The most harmful impact patriarchy has had on my personal life is the slow but relentless erosion of my inner sense of desire and autonomy. Upon adulthood, I had come to see my own abilities and talents as resources to be harvested for the service of others rather than skills or opportunities to chase my own ambitions. Patriarchy made it clear that my will, my hunger, my want and desire were only ever mine to surrender and never wield. I believed my worth was determined by how well I functioned as my assigned gender role in God's plan of happiness for individuals and families. 
It didn't happen all at once, ignoring my own inner wisdom and wishes for the sake of checking off boxes from the list of how to do female life correctly, which I had been given over the years. No, this death of desire came from the 1,000 paper cuts of patriarchy, and it started when I was just a child. In the deeply patriarchal religious culture where I was raised, there was a very specific chain of authority to be respected. God was a supreme male being who created all of us and made specific plans for our lives. Our happiness as individuals and families depended on the exactness with which we learned about and followed this prescribed plan. The plan was written by men, ancient prophets who documented commandments as scripture, and was taught and interpreted by what my faith tradition calls living prophets, specific men in authority who were given exclusive access to interpreting God's scriptures and commandments for all of the adherents of our faith. From a male God to our male prophet and the local congregation leadership, also men, we were taught that the husband and father presided in the family as head of the home. These men were granted authority and stewardship by virtue of their priesthood. Women were not seen as authorities with power, but as auxiliaries. All the members of the religious community and my family knew this system, followed it, and perpetuated it. In many respects, no one person is responsible for placing the full weight of patriarchy on me, as each teacher, mentor, and relative, similarly impacted by patriarchy themselves, was only playing their role within the same scripts. The collective teaching by these men, both alive and preserved in scripture on behalf of our shared male God, included the following— not my will, but thine be done. And I am here to do the will of my Father. In these examples, Jesus was not just a savior for us, but a template for how we too should submit to the will of the Father. And the cursing of Eve, thy desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over thee, applied to all her daughters as well. In relation to what sort of sexual feelings or desires I had, I was taught to bridle all my passions. The passions of women must be like a wild horse in need of steering or harnessing, I supposed. I came to learn that this bridling extended beyond my dress and behavior and included any ambitions I had for a life beyond the home sphere as well. Once the women and girls in my community were fully indoctrinated with these beliefs, we became a self-policing entity. Older women monitored younger women. Young women shamed, judged, and bullied each other for deviant behavior. The buttressing of patriarchal standards continued under threat of a male gaze, even if no men were present. As a teenage girl, patriarchal paper cuts were the norm, a co-ed youth river trip, having the inseam of my shorts measured by my bishop's wife in front of my peers, or questions about my chastity and moral cleanliness, including sexual activity and masturbation, being asked by my bishop during the biannual youth worthiness interviews. As a college student, it was the intense scrutiny on part of my father who confronted me with his suspicions about whether or not I was having sex with my boyfriend at the time, or when my grandma called me a slut after coming home too late from a date while staying at her house. In each of these cases, I felt intensely violated, embarrassed, and ashamed. While this discomfort might have alerted me to the wrongness of their words and actions, instead I ran it through the only filter I knew— 
God's will surpassed my will, and it was my role and duty to submit to God. The only way to know a male God's will for me was to find out commandments from his male prophet's words, who instructed that my local male clergy leaders, bishop, pastor, father, were the authorities of my life and could dictate to me what my desires were allowed to be. I was only allowed to have righteous desires. I was to bridle my passions. End of discussion. The disruption to my inner knowing concluded with, well, it feels off and I don't like it, but it checks out with what I know about the rules for how life is supposed to go. The consequence for disobeying always ended with the wrath and vengeance of a displeased God who judged me to hell for my impurity. It was very clear to me that the most righteous and worthy women were those who submitted to their husbands and the chain of male authority on up from there. A vision of this type of woman began to form in my mind, one straw at a time, until a haystack of lessons, sermons, youth camps, and the examples of women I knew made the result inevitable. This particular righteous sort of woman married a certain type of religious and ambitious man. She was educated and clever, but only for the purpose of how her knowledge and skills would help her children. She did not work outside the home or have a job that demanded time away from her family. She should be attractive and fit, but also modest, and reserve all expressions of sexuality for her husband. She must be married as a virgin in the highest religious ceremonies in the Holy Temple, dressed all in white. Once married, she should only work if it was to support her husband's education or business pursuits, and she should not delay having children. She should have many children and raise them in righteousness. She would never seek divorce, no matter how bad a marriage might be for her, because she could always make it work with her own personal goodness. I didn't invent this woman out of whole cloth. She was described in detail by church leaders and modeled by women in my homogenous community. Women who failed to meet these expectations were openly self-criticizing and judged by others. I didn't know at the time that patriarchy had created different lists for women of color that included many of the opposite expectations. Historically and still today, black women are expected to work outside the home, often raising other people's children instead of their own. As a young woman raised in a lower income white family, the ideal white woman in a heteronormative marriage stayed home from work and raised her children on her own without caregiving relief or government assistance. With this detailed list of what God's plan of happiness for white women included, I set out to start achieving the proper benchmarks. I turned down the invitation to study abroad in Costa Rica. It was much more important to work and save money that summer, so I didn't take any debt with me into a future marriage and be a burden to my husband. I broke up with a man I deeply loved because he wasn't religious, and we couldn't have the expected temple wedding ceremony. I set aside my desires of being an orchestral musician who would put my children to bed if I was playing an evening concert. I put away dreams for graduate school. I would need to work and put my husband through his degrees first. The pedagogy of patriarchy taught me to edge out other women, to resent and judge women who acted on their own desires. The wounds I felt from patriarchy I inflicted upon others. How dare they get what they want? None of us can. The funny thing was, I didn't always suffocate in the patriarchy-infested water. 
Every once in a while, I came up to gasp the sweet air of self-determination. The summer I turned 18, my father tried to forbid me from moving out to attend college, where I had been given a full-ride music scholarship, all because he didn't like my viola professor. I worked two jobs, paid cash for a car, packed up all my belongings, and left anyway. When working with that professor came to a natural end, I sought out where I wanted to study next, transferred and graduated without input or help from anyone. I worked to provide for myself and lived alone for several years. I was responsible, got excellent grades, made new friends, and had wonderful romantic relationships. And then in my fourth year at college, I was sexually assaulted by a man in my music department. I felt the world shatter around me as I realized the vision of the perfect Mormon woman I was supposed to be could never be my reality because now I was ruined, impure, and unworthy. I had shut down so many wants and desires, deferred my discomfort by scapegoating it as part of God's plan, but how could that pain be part of my path unless I was going completely the wrong direction? My passion horses had escaped their bridles, apparently. I understood the rape to be a message from God that my life was dissatisfactory to him, that I was deserving of punishment and shame. I told no one. I sought no healing nor help. It must have been my errors that brought about the attack. Perhaps I was too alluring, or I should have known better than to go into his house alone. I should have guarded my virtue with my life. I retreated into myself and determined to correct my course. I concluded that the only way to reclaim the vision of that perfect plan following woman was to completely shut down desire altogether and that a lifetime of servitude and penance might somehow redeem me for my sins. I hid my pain and loneliness behind masks of stalwart cheerfulness. Even to my unsuspecting husband who has never once tried to subdue me, I assumed I knew his will and submitted myself to it. The desires I still had burned a fire of shame through my core as I suppressed them deeper and further down. In my temple wedding ceremony, I promised to hearken to the counsel of my husband and gave myself to him as part of the wedding vows, language that was not reciprocated. I carried the scars of shame and unworthiness through years of infertility, further proof that I had not done enough good in my life to counteract the wrong yet. Too many visits with aggressive male doctors and invasive vaginal ultrasound procedures triggered the same frozen response I had during the college assault. I don't want this, but I'm shocked by fear and cannot move. The only way to cope with gynecological and obstetric exams was to dissociate from my body to avoid feeling what was happening to me with their cold metal speculums. The trigger point where I felt something begin to change was in seeing a feminist petition signed by women from my faith community. Their joint statement was in response to a global church leader who described the attributes of worthy mothers as mothers who know. The church leader suggested that the faithful daughters of Eve desired to have children and prioritized nurturing their children through a specific style of homemaking. The leader went on to list unpaid caregiving tasks like keeping an orderly home as the responsibility of a mother who knows. 
The feminists suggested that such a limited scope of acceptable motherhood style might be unhelpful to women in the trenches of child raising, or that some women may not have ability or desire to bear children. The feminists claimed space for women to define themselves beyond the roles of wives and mothers. It was a small petition, didn't get much news, but to me it was an earth-shattering crack in the veneer that I had used to shroud the sort of ideal woman I was trying to be, all while hiding who I actually was. Slowly a sunrise of understanding began to grow in my mind. Maybe I was worthy just as I was. Maybe I was the one who could define my roles and relationships, not some faraway church leaders in an office. Maybe... I could choose to do and be things that were not on the checklist. Maybe the crime committed against me was not my fault and didn't reflect the kind of person I was. Maybe I didn't deserve it because God was unhappy with me. Maybe I didn't deserve it at all. Maybe God, if there was a God, was a limitless vessel of love and light and was not sending me messages of pain and torment just to teach me a lesson. Maybe it matters what I want, and only I can choose it. Without the appearance of angels or any other divine catalyst, absent any revelation or interpretation from male prophets, when left to my own quiet thoughts, I finally concluded, I decide if I am worthy. For all the years I had subjected myself to worthiness interviews, I now vowed that never again will I allow anyone to assess or share their perception of my worthiness. And if anyone offers unsolicited critiques of my worthiness or would shame me for my mistakes, they can fuck right off. And that includes God. The wounds of this patriarchal system are deeply embedded in me personally. They affect my marriage and other close relationships. The patterns are present in my family and local community. They are the backbone of the religious institution I grew up in, and they shape the societal laws and policies of the government where I live. From the most internal to the most interpersonal, all the way to an institutional level, systemic patriarchy has hurt me my whole life. The most invigorating part of claiming my autonomous worthiness is that my senses of want, desire, and dream have begun to return to me. Unlike Rousseau believed, the lives, work, and passions of women do not exist purely in relation to their accessory function to men. Imagine that! What a gift to finally realize that my life is mine to build or screw up as I see fit. What an intense energy shift the world would feel if every woman were so liberated as to be able to choose for herself what she will do and be without the stinging stripes of patriarchy programming her or putting her down. One way I'm breaking down patriarchy every day is the seemingly innocuous but radical act of doing whatever the hell I want and finding no guilt in my desires. so grateful to Carrie for this powerful piece. Having been raised in a similar culture and taught to follow a similar script, I could very much relate to the way women are stifled by patriarchy and damaged by those paper cuts, big and small, for so long. But I'm also really inspired and encouraged to hear such incisive words of truth from Carrie. 
Wrapping up today's exploration of these mistresses of patriarchy, we'll be hearing from Heather Renfro with a brief but deeply resonant retelling of a formative memory. Heather Lewis Renfro works as an educator at a high school in the San Francisco Bay Area and as a university supervisor for beginning teachers. She's also a mom to two awesome teenagers. Outside of the things that keep her busy, she can be found swimming, reading, and walking her dog. Hi, my name is Heather Renfro. My pronouns are she, her. I am a high school teacher, high school English teacher in my 40s. I live in the Bay Area in California where I was raised, child of military family, um, and I am a mom to two teenagers. And this is my story. I remember a moment when I was nine years old riding in my family's station wagon. My younger brothers were in the back seat and I was in the front seat with my mom and dad. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I was chattering happily. I asked, if I ran for president, would you vote for me? The fact that this specific moment has stuck with me for 40 years reveals a lot. I can still see the roomy inside of the station wagon and can still feel the sinking feeling when I heard the answer. Now, a parent myself, I know that my nine-year-old self was looking for affirmation. I wanted to know, do my parents see me as capable, strong, trustworthy? I was imagining all kinds of futures for myself, even one where I could be president. My mom answered first, and she said, no. She explained that it wouldn't be right for a woman to be president. It's not a role they were meant to have. The reasons behind her answer were likely informed by her upbringing in conservative 1950s Tennessee, and they were definitely informed by her conservative Christian beliefs. In her world, men were intended to be heads of households, leaders of the family, of industry, and of the country. She didn't work or want to work and viewed her role to be raising children and managing the household. Looking back, I'm not angry at her answer, but I do feel saddened by it. I'm sad for the girl who heard that answer. It shocked and it hurt. Even though I had been raised with those ideas for nine years, it was this moment that made it suddenly real how limited my life could be because I was female. I think that's why I remember this moment so vividly. And from my vantage point now, I'm also sad for my mother. Imagine what had been instilled in her that she could tell her eager, enthusiastic, hopeful daughter that she wouldn't vote for her. It's heartbreaking to me to imagine that scenario now. I can't fathom ever saying that to my own daughter. And maybe the reason this seems unbelievable to me now is because of what happened next. I asked my dad, would you vote for me? Yes, he answered. I don't remember what happened next, if there was any more conversation, but this small moment represents a lot about my relationships with my parents over my lifetime. They later divorced, and I've maintained good relationships with them both, but I've always understood that my mom holds ideas I don't understand or agree with. My dad was somehow able to see a bigger picture than my mom was. He developed a clearer and more critical view of teachings and values he had grown up with, rejecting those things that didn't honor and value all people as equally worthy. Sometimes I imagine what might have happened if I hadn't had a parent who said yes. What would that have felt like to me? What effects might it have had on my confidence, 
my motivation, my views of myself and vision for my life. I can't know for sure, but reflecting on this memory has helped me think more about the importance of that yes from my dad. It meant a lot in that moment to have affirmation and a vote of confidence from my parents. But was it more significant to me because he was my dad, my male protector and the authority in our house? Was it more significant because I highly valued his male opinion? I think it's possible. And that adds a layer of complexity to this story that I hadn't originally considered. In my story, it is a man who gives me a vote of confidence that I am just as worthy and competent as a boy. Yet I valued his opinion so much, perhaps, because he was a man. It's of course complicated with my love for my dad and the greater degree of closeness I had with him than with my mom. But I have to consider that growing up steeped in the brew of patriarchal values impacted me in ways I can't always see even now. While I strive for openness and criticality of the culture I live in, this exercise has revealed to me how much of a process that is, not an aha moment, but a constant examining. It was lovely of my dad to say, yes, I would vote for you for president, and I will always love him for that. In fact, when I first wrote this piece, I ended it with a wish that every girl should receive a vote of confidence like my father's. But that wish should be revised. I wish now that every child should be secure in their aspirations without wondering if their gender will limit them and without needing male approval. We're so thankful to Heather Renfro for letting us sit in that deep memory with her. And we're grateful to all of today's contributors, Heather Sundahl and Carrie Salisbury as well. There is more to unpack in our own and other women's roles in patriarchy than we could possibly reach in one episode. But I hope that all of you listening will find these stories as a helpful jumping off point for further introspection. I know I did. As always, I'd also like to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And last but certainly not least, thank you so much, listeners, for joining us week after week. Be sure to visit us on Instagram and on our website as well, breakingdownpatriarchy.com, and forward the podcast on to a friend. You never know who might need it. And be sure to tune in next week when we'll be joined by one of my heroes. It's the one and only Lindsay Hansen Park, who will be teaching us about Mormon feminism, the legacy of colonialism, and the particularly painful practice of polygamy. This is an episode you won't want to miss. So join us for Lindsay Hansen Park next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.